Much of Jesus' earthly ministry was centered in the region of Galilee and focused on teaching, preaching, and healing. Matthew 4.23 Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. According to Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus proclaimed, was this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. Generally, the kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign and eternal rule over the universe. More specifically, when applied to individuals, it refers to God's rule over those individuals who have submitted to his authority. An individual's entrance into God's kingdom is only granted when they repent and believe the gospel. Now, the gospel message contains a twofold command. There is a command to repent of one's sin. Sin separates humanity from God and condemns them to the lake of fire. As well, there is a command to believe the gospel. The specific content of the gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4. It says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The commands and content of the gospel are the same today as they were in Jesus' day. And so the question is, for you, the listener, have you become a kingdom citizen? Have you repented of your sin? Have you placed your faith in the content of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died, shed his blood to cover your sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture. As Jesus preached the gospel and taught the scriptures, according to Matthew 4.25, large crowds followed him. According to Matthew chapter 5.1-2, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now upon seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain. After months of preaching, teaching, and healing, he went up to the mountain to escape the crowds. He used his time away to sit and teach his disciples. That he sat down to teach his disciples underscores Jesus' role as a rabbi. Rabbis often traveled from town to town gathering disciples, or Talmudim, literally those who study. As the rabbis sat and taught, their disciples would gather around them to listen and learn. In the same way that Moses ascended a mountain to receive God's law, Jesus ascended this mountain to rightly interpret God's law and apply it to the disciples' lives. That this sermon is given only to the disciples is significant. The disciples were those who repented and believed the gospel of the kingdom. Thus, this sermon, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, is only for those who are kingdom citizens. The Sermon on the Mount, while well known, is sadly largely misunderstood and hardly obeyed. Now, what is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto for living as kingdom citizens. Kingdom citizens are to live differently from those who live in the world. 
In Leviticus 18 verse 3, God commanded Israel, You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, nor in the land of Canaan. So now in Matthew 6, 8, Jesus commands his citizens, his kingdom citizens, do not be like the Gentiles. You see, the Sermon on the Mount then is a series of lessons based upon God's law for living as kingdom citizens. And Jesus begins this sermon by outlining eight characteristics that every believer should exemplify as citizens of the kingdom. Each of the characteristics begins with the commendation, bless it. The commendation of blessing is a makarism derived from the Greek term makarios. The use of makarisms or blessings developed in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 33.29 Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the world. Who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places? Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 144 and verse 15. How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 3 and verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Now that Hebrew term, esher, translated as blessed, identifies people who did God's will and possessed his favor. In other words, to be blessed, makarios or esher, means to have joy due to obeying God's will and possessing his favor. Being blessed does not refer to happiness. Happiness is derived from what happens to someone. Happiness is what you may feel, but joy is what you choose to do despite how you feel. Interposing the term blessing with joy presents a clearer picture of what it means to be blessed. Hence the eight qualities here in Matthew chapter 5, 3 through 12 could be reworded as follows. The poor in spirit are joyful because theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who mourn are joyful because they shall be comforted. The gentle are joyful because they shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are joyful because they shall be satisfied. The merciful are joyful because they shall receive mercy. The pure in heart are joyful because they shall see God. The peacemakers are joyful because they shall be called the sons of God. Those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness are joyful because theirs is the kingdom of God. In each statement, those demonstrating these eight characteristics are blessed or joyful because of the rewards attached. Interestingly, the reward for the first and last characteristic is the same. The kingdom of heaven. Hence, they form an inclusio. Now, the use of an inclusio implies that the information enveloped between the beginning and end statements is bound together. Each statement is dependent upon the other like links in a chain. That Jesus begins his sermon with this inclusio underscores the primary importance it has for believers as kingdom citizens. It must also be determined whether or not these rewards are present or future. 
The first and eighth blessing is presented in the present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessings between the first and eighth are presented in the future. They shall, etc., etc. Now, while some scholars believe they are present and others future, it is best to say they are both. Believers begin to experience some blessings in the present, while complete enjoyment of the blessings will come in the future. It is also important to note that the use of the future tense does not merely denote when they will occur, but the certainty that they will occur. These eight beatitudes, as they're sometimes called, or characteristics of the kingdom citizen, can be broken into two categories, divine and human. The first four characteristics, poor in spirit, mournful, gentle, and hunger and thirst for righteousness, relate to the divine. That is, they deal with the kingdom citizen's relationship with God. The second four characteristics, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, and persecuted, relate to humanity. That is, they deal with the kingdom citizen's relationship with their fellow man. To best examine these characteristics, the characteristics of a kingdom citizen, consideration will be given first to those qualities dealing with the believer's relationship with God in the sermon. In the next sermon, consideration will be given to those qualities dealing with a believer's relationship with others. And so let's begin by taking our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. And we're going to look at the first characteristic. They are poor in spirit. Verse 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice here that the first characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are poor in spirit. The term poor, patokas, typically denotes someone who possesses little material wealth. The phrase poor in spirit denotes someone who identifies their spiritual poverty or bankruptcy. Now in the Old Testament, the poor were sometimes referred to as the low or the lowly. In Isaiah, excuse me, 2 Samuel 2 and verse 7, the Lord makes poor and rich, he brings low, he also exalts. Now the terms poor and low are synonymous because they're in parallel position. The term low, chapelle, denotes someone living in poverty. In Isaiah 57 verse 15, Yahweh declares, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, lowly in spirit denotes someone who identifies their spiritual poverty or bankruptcy. Hence, Jesus' reference to the poor in spirit is an allusion to the lowly in spirit. As well, the lowly of spirit is synonymous with the term contrite. Contrite, daco, means to express sorrow or pain over sin. Psalm 34.18 declares, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now there the verb crushed is the same as contrite, daca. Note that they are crushed in the spirit. In other words, they, their sorrow over sin is spiritual or genuine. Hence to be lowly in spirit or poor in spirit is to express sorrow over one's spiritual poverty due to their sin. Also, 
Those who are crushed in spirit are the brokenhearted, Shabelib. That is, their spirit, their inner person, their conscience is afflicted over their sin. To those whose conscience is afflicted over sin and who express genuine sorrow over sin, Yahweh will save or deliver from their sin. As Psalm 51.17 declares, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Indeed, Jesus the Messiah came to heal the brokenhearted, that is, redeem those who are poor in spirit or acknowledge their sin and spiritual poverty. Psalm 147 and verse 3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isaiah 61 and verse 1, Because the Lord has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You see, those who are poor in spirit are those who acknowledge their sin and spiritual poverty before God. They are conscious that all their righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, Isaiah 64, 6. Like the tax collector, they cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, Luke 18, 13. As well, they sorrow and grieve knowing that their sin is an, is an, are abominable acts which the Lord hates, Deuteronomy 12, 31. Have you acknowledged that you're poor in spirit? Believer, you cannot be a kingdom citizen without acknowledging your spiritual poverty. Those who are poor in spirit can rejoice because theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, if you are poor in spirit, if you're acknowledging your sin and spiritual poverty, you can be assured your citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Notice here that it is not the self-righteous who deny their sin, but those who acknowledge they are sinners who enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go on to verse 4. The second characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are mournful. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, the second characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are mournful. The term mourn, pentheo, means to feel grief or sorrow. Now, theologically, there are four types of mourning. There is natural mourning, which occurs over the loss of a loved one. There is sinful mourning. That is excessive grief that refuses to be comforted. Worldly sorrow is grief over being caught in sin, not over the sin. And then there is godly sorrow that is genuine grief over sin. When Jesus referred to those who mourn, he had in mind godly sorrow over sin. James used this verb in the same way in James 4.9, be miserable and mourn and weep. The Old Testament prophets used the command to be miserable, mourn, and weep to call the people to repent of their sin before judgment fell upon them. The prophet Joel cried out, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Joel 2.12 Mourn, pentheo, is to experience grief or sorrow over one's wretched state. It is an outward display of sorrow. The Hebrew verbs for mourning, amispeed and sapad, mean to lament, cry out, or wail in sorrow over the death of a loved one. The prophets co-opted the outward display of mourning, i.e. going barefoot, tearing off one's clothes, putting on sackcloth, and associated it with the outward display of repentance over sin. Jeremiah 4.8, For this put on sackcloth, lament and wail. Micah 1 and verse 8, because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go 
barefoot and naked. When the Corinthian church tolerated immorality, Paul charged them with arrogance and a failure to mourn or repent. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned, Pentheo, instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Hence, the idea of mourning is repenting over sin. Being poor in spirit means acknowledging your sin and spiritual poverty. However, it's not enough to simply acknowledge your sin. You must repent of your sin. Repentance of sin is not simply saying, I'm sorry, God. Rather, it's agreeing with God about your sin and outwardly grieving over that sin. We as believers ought to grieve over sin because it offends God, not because the sin was discovered. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow because sin was discovered is worldly sorrow. Such sorrow ends in death. Godly sorrow, however, grieves or is miserable because sin has offended God and produces repentance as a result. Now, friends, repentance does not end with your salvation. It must characterize your life. Hence, it's to be part of your sanctification. You must always be acknowledging and confessing your sin before God. 1 John 1, 8-9 If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, the surest way to determine whether your uh, salvific repentance is genuine or not is to ask whether or not repentance is part of your daily sanctification. Genuine believers repent of their sin daily. Ask yourself, do you repent of your sin on a regular basis, on a daily basis? If not, why not? Now, to those who mourn or are characterized by repentance, Jesus promises that they shall be comforted. That verb comforted, parakaleo, means to come alongside someone to help. The verb's in the passive voice implying that God is the one who comes alongside to help. Now, what help can God offer you if you're mourning over your sin? Simply but powerfully stated, forgiveness. Interestingly, in the Talmud, one of the titles for the Messiah is Manakim, meaning comforter. In Isaiah 61 and verse 2, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would comfort all who mourn. Now consider that some 800 years later, Simeon the priest was looking for the consolation of Israel, Luke 2.25. The term consolation, paraclesis, describes the source of comfort. Simeon was looking for Messiah the comforter, the one who would grant forgiveness and salvation. And when Simeon held the baby Jesus in his arms, he announced, My eyes have seen your salvation. Luke 2 and verse 30. He saw with his eyes, held with his hands, and declared with his mouth that Jesus was Messiah the Comforter. And that Jesus is the Comforter means that through his redemptive work on the cross, all who repent, all who mourn, can be forgiven. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now the terms grief and sorrow in Isaiah 53 verse 4 are terms for repentance. Thus when Isaiah said, Our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, he is conveying the idea that Jesus carried the weight of every believer's repentance on the cross. He was the comforter of those who mourn. And if there is any doubt that Jesus was Messiah the Comforter, then consider his words about the Holy Spirit. Before returning to heaven, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit as another comforter. John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, i.e. comforter, that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth. That adjective, another, alas, in John 14, 26, means another of the same kind. Comforter translates parakletos, meaning one who gives help. That is, the Holy Spirit would be the same kind of comforter as Jesus the Messiah. Now, to those who mourn, Jesus promises forgiveness. Forgiveness is the absolution of our sins. Indeed, when God forgives sins, he declares, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins anymore. Isaiah 43, 25. As Lenski stated, the greatest of all comfort is the absolution pronounced upon every contrite mourning sinner. Let's move on to verse 5. The third characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are gentle. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Again, the third characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are gentle. That term gentle, praus, or meek, denotes the idea of humility. Jesus described himself as gentle and humble in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine. The term gentle and humble are synonyms and convey Jesus as the gentlest of the gentle or the humblest of the humble. He, he willingly laid aside his rights or authority for the good of others and the glory of God. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 2, and verse 23, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The gentleness or humility of Jesus is to be emanated by us, his followers, his disciples. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that Hebrew word for gentle, anawa, conveys the idea of humbling oneself in times of affliction or suffering. Those who are meek, were gentle, humbled themselves amidst suffering, confident that God will deliver them. Psalm 76 and verse 9. When God arose to judgment to save all the humble, all the gentle, all the meek of the earth. Psalm 149 and verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones or the humble ones or the gentle ones, the meek ones with salvation. 
Now, understanding the Greek and Hebrew terms presents a gentle or meek person as one who humbles themselves amid suffering, setting aside rights, and placing their confidence in God to deliver them. You see, gentleness or meekness is often misunderstood as weakness. However, one ought to consider Moses, who according to Numbers 12 and verse 3 was very humble, anawa, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Though Moses was gentle or meek, when the Israelites besmirched Yahweh's glory, quote, his anger burned and he shattered the tablets, ground it to powder, made the sons of Israel to drink it, Exodus 32, 19, 20. Then Moses executed 3,000 men who led the rebellion and the people to commit idolatry. Exodus 32, 26-28. As well, you ought to consider Jesus, who is the meekest of the meek, the gentlest of the gentle, the humblest of the humble. When the religious leaders besmirched his father's glory by turning the temple into a marketplace of extortion, he made a scourge of cords, drove them all out of the temple, and poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. Indeed, gentleness is not weakness. Now, while contextually... The characteristic of gentleness or meekness is directed Godward. There's also a manward expectation. As we develop a character of gentleness, it will affect how we interact with others in at least two ways. Gentleness will enable us to properly admonish one another. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. As well, it will enable us to engage in the ministry of restoration. Brethren, even if one is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now to those who are gentle, Jesus promises that they shall inherit the earth. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would bring good news to the gentle. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. That term afflicted is anawa, the Hebrew term for gentle, humble, or meek. Hence, Isaiah's prophecy is a declaration that Jesus the Messiah is anointed or set apart to announce a message of good news to the gentle. Who are the gentle? Again, it is those who humble themselves amid suffering, set aside their rights, and place their confidence in God to deliver them. The good news or blessing which Jesus announces to the gentle is an allusion to Psalm 3711. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now friends, this promise has a dual implication. One for Israel and the other for the church. On the one hand, it guarantees the physical inheritance of the land to Israel. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to give Abraham's descendants a land. Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional and eternal means that God will fulfill the promise to bless Israel with the promised land at a point in the future. When Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, a new national Israel of redeemed Jews will receive that promise. On the other hand, Jesus' promise is also made to the church, to us. In what way will we inherit the earth? Jesus promised that his bride, the church, would reign with him. Matthew 19, 28. 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Thus, when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, the church, us as believers, will inherit the earth in that we, it will be ours to reign over. Verse 6. The fourth characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, that fourth characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. The verbal phrase hunger and thirst, panayo kai deseo, denotes an intense desire for something. That desire that emanates from kingdom citizens is for righteousness. Believers ought to have an intense desire for righteousness. Do you have that desire? Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness, the kaisune, is obedience to God and His law. Theologically, there are three aspects to righteousness. Legal, moral, and social. Legal righteousness, or the law of righteousness, refers to the legal standing by which one is declared justified based on faith. Romans 9 30 to 32 and 10, 3 to 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness attain to righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue the law by faith, but as though it were by works. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end, i.e. the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Don't misinterpret that verse. This is why I tell you repeatedly, you've got to study the words. The word end there doesn't mean the finish of the law. It means the goal of the law. What is the goal of the law? On one hand, it's to point us to the Savior, and for the saved, it's to point them to their sanctification. Moral righteousness. Okay, so that's legal righteousness. What is moral righteousness? Moral righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ possessed by believers so that their conduct conforms to God's righteous moral standard, His law. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 22. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin, i.e. the sacrifice for sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then there's social righteousness, which is conformity to God's righteousness and justice in the world. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his works are perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Biblically, social righteousness promotes civil rights, a just judicial system, integrity in business, and dignity in interpersonal relationships. Isaiah 117, seek justice. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Psalm 82, verse 3 to 4, vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Micah 6, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? 
but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That Jesus is speaking to us as kingdom citizens suggests that we already, pers- per- we already possess legal righteousness. The righteousness then for which we are to hunger and thirst is first moral and second social. First, from a Godward perspective, we must intensely desire moral righteousness. In the words of Jesus, we need to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. Second, from a manward perspective, we must intensely desire social righteousness. To this manward perspective, we must beware this warning. Matthew 5, 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, 23 provides a snapshot of the Pharisees' righteousness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. To those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus promises that they shall be satisfied. The verb shall be satisfied, cortazo, means to eat and drink one's fill. That is, we will be satisfied with righteousness. Now, this satisfaction is future. It implies that we're never going to be completely satisfied in this life in our desire for righteousness. But when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, he will reign in righteousness. Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Isaiah 11.4 But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Jeremiah 33 verse 15 In those days and at that time I will cause the righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. You see, with God's law established as the law for the whole world, there will be no more injustice, no more oppression, no more indignity. On that day, kingdoms are, uh, on that day we as kingdom citizens will be satisfied in our longing for moral and social righteousness but you need to ask yourself are you as a kingdom citizen are you intently desiring righteousness both moral and social righteousness these first four characteristics of a kingdom citizen are part of a chain of characteristics demonstrating how we relate to god we must be poor in spirit Before a thrice holy God, you must acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. Second, believer, we must mourn. That is, we must sorrow over our sin and approach the throne of grace and repentance. Next, we must be gentle. Because of our spiritual poverty God's more and God's more extraordinary grace and mercy in forgiving our sins, we ought to humble ourselves before Him and submit to His authority. And finally, we must hunger and thirst for righteousness. In submitting to the Lord Jesus... As king, we must seek to conform our lives to his law and practice his righteousness in the world around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the start of this study in the Sermon on the Mount. And Father, as we begin by looking at these characteristics of what makes a kingdom citizen, that Father, we would begin by looking at our relationship with you. That, Father, we would examine 
ourselves to see where we are, to make sure that we are rightly acknowledging our spiritual poverty. That, Father, we're daily confessing and repenting our sin. That, Lord, we're daily submitting ourselves, humbling ourselves to to your Son's authority as our Lord. And that, Father, we're pursuing and seeking righteousness. That we're pursuing to obey your law and that, Lord, we're extending that righteousness in the world around us. Help us to that end, Father. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.